Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the privilege of coming into your presence and knowing that you want to speak to us. We pray that, uh, that you would give us open ears and open hearts. And so, Lord, just guide us right now. Guide us into your truth. We want to hear what you have to say. And so please just glorify yourself tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we find ourselves tonight in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians is written uh, to a church that the Apostle Paul had started. He had pastored it for about 18 months, which at the time would have been the longest he had ever pastored a single church. Um, And he's writing the book several years after he started the church. At this point, he's pastoring uh, probably the church in Ephesus. And he gets a report from the church, kind of, uh, you know, some, hey, here's kind of where we're at. We're having some questions. We're having some struggles. Would you like to to shed some light on the situation? And so he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We actually, we, what we call in the Bible 1 and 2 Corinthians are actually uh, 2 and 4 Corinthians because he's going to reference an earlier letter that he had written and he'll reference in the book of 2 Corinthians another letter that we don't have. So, um, 2 Corinthians, which we call 1 Corinthians, is where we're at tonight. Um, But basically, you know, Corinth, the city of Corinth was a very wealthy city. They had capitalized on basically an industry of moving, shipping from one sea to the other, and uh, along the way had found a way to make a great profit off of it. And so you had a rich, uh, very profitable, very sinful city. You've got a lot of with that, you've got a church that's birthed out of that. So you have a church where the believers are coming out of a lifestyle with a lot of sin, a lot of baggage. There's a lot that they're just trying to sort through and process. And okay, what do we do now that we're a Christian? What is, how, should this, how should the truth that Jesus is God, that he died to save us from our sins, how should that impact our sins? How should that impact our day-to-day living? And so Paul's answering some specific questions here and some specific church situations, but along the way, he's going to shed light to uh, just a ton of relevance for all of us. So tonight, we're going to read chapters 5, 6, and 7. Um, we're going to probably read it in kind of big chunks. That's sort of how I like to do it, but back up just real fast. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Paul's giving this book authoritatively by the will of God, by the power of God. And so he's going to deal with issues in the church. He's going to say, here's what needs to happen in a church. Here's how you address things. And this isn't, uh, hey, here's my take. This isn't, here's my opinion. This is, hey, here's the will of God. There's the will of God for how a church should respond, for how an individual should be walking in holiness based on the gospel. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves. So backing up just a little bit, uh, chapter 4, we'll go verse 19, just to sort of get us in the groove for chapter 5. He says, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? He's saying, look, there's a lot of problems in this church, guys. There are things that need to be dealt with. And I would really like it if I could write you a letter and say, here's what needs to be dealt with. And I show up a few months from now and you say, hey, we dealt with it. I would really not like it if I show up and you say, hey, we haven't dealt with it. And then I have to deal with it. So he's kind of giving them a gracious but firm invitation. Hey, 
Here's a problem. Deal with it. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What the heck? Uh, so, so you've got a fairly awkward church situation. You've got a man shacking up with a woman who's presumably his stepmother, uh, the Greek isn't super clear, so we'll just assume it's his stepmother, like that's any less awkward. Um, and he's, Paul's point is, look guys, you got sin in the church, and you are, instead of being brokenhearted over the fact that there's sin in your church, you're arrogant over the fact that you consider yourself to be a tolerant people. He says, that's dumb. That is stupid. Tolerating sin in the church is not being gracious. It's putting a veneer on an emptiness in this man's soul. You're covering up for something that's lacking. And so he says, deliver such a one to Satan. Some people get really weirded out by that. What does he mean? You know, is like, do we have the power to like throw someone to Satan? Eh, whatever, don't, don't overthink it. Basically, here's what he's saying. Kick the guy out of the church. If the man is not willing to repent, if the man is walking in flagrant sin and, and the church has said, hey, look, here's what the word of God says. Here's the standard. You know, we've dealt with it like it says in the gospel of Matthew where one person went and he rejected it and then two people went and then the elders and the pastors went and he's still rejecting it. Throw him out of the church. Tell him he's not welcome here. And Paul says, deliver him to Satan. And what he's saying is, look, the church needs to not be a veneer for this man to cover up his sin. The church should be a place where if you are struggling with sin, if you, are, if you are wrestling and, and you know, you're still falling down and, but trying to walk in the grace of God, the church should be a place where you can come and be safe. And you can come and have people who are going to come alongside you and say, look, we are all broken people. We are all struggling to walk appropriately in response to the grace of Christ. But the church should not be a place where we say, hey, what you're doing has no significance. It has no consequence. And so when Paul says basically, throw this man out of the church, what he's saying is, look, this guy right now has got an emptiness. A person who's walking in flagrant sin does not understand the grace of God. And so if this person is using the grace of God as a covering, take away the covering. Let him see the emptiness of sin so that he can be broken over it, so that he can repent. Don't let church be a place where you make people feel good about their sin. Let the church be a place where people can encounter the holiness of of Jesus Christ, where they can be convicted for their sin, they can repent of it, and they can move on. And so there's immense grace. There has to be so much grace when a believer is struggling with sin and trying to walk through it. But when a person has an attitude of, you know what, I can do what I want and Jesus still loves me, Paul says, no, don't, don't let that attitude invade your church. He's going to go on in verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. 
For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's dig- digging out a metaphor here that's all throughout Scripture. He says, look, a little bit of yeast makes a whole loaf of bread rise. A little bit of sin that's not dealt with can pollute an entire church. And so being puffed up over, hey, we're the tolerant church. Hey, we're going to just let everybody come as they are and stay as they are is not good. It's going to corrupt your church and you need to deal with the sin here. He's going on in verse 9. He says, now I wrote to you in my epistle, so he's referencing an earlier letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul says, okay, let's clarify. In my last letter, I said, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Don't hang out. Don't befriend sexually immoral people. I didn't mean the lost people in the world. Because if you're going to say, I can't hang out with sinners... It's a lonely lifestyle, right? At that point, I mean, you're, moving to Mars is your best option because everyone is a sinner. And specifically, he says, look, you'd have to go out of the world. The world, we don't, we don't accept the sin that's in the world, but we're going to walk in graciousness towards those who are lost. Because why? Because they're just living out the practical response of what they believe, right? Our world right now is, in, is so horribly messed up. On basic things, like can you cut off body parts and change your gender? The answer is no, you cannot. You cannot defy the DNA that's in your body that God put there. But our world believes they can. Why? Because they're just living out the practical response of their worldview. They're just walking in logical steps, which is if I'm an animal, if nothing I do matters, if all this life is all I have, then why not try something crazy? Right? So, we live in a world where people are doing these things to themselves, and Paul's saying, look, yeah, have graciousness with these people. Love these people. Invite them into your church. Invite them to come and experience the grace of Christ. But there's a difference between a lost person who is walking in sin just as the natural progression of being lost and a person who is claiming to be a Christian and refusing to accept that there's a call to holiness. There's a difference between a person who struggles with sin and a person who walks in sin. We've talked about this really through the, through the entire scripture, right? First John, Romans 6, it's all throughout the scripture. We are all gonna struggle with sin. There is a difference between saying, I am struggling with sin. I'm struggling to fully appreciate and grow in the holiness that God has invited me into and saying, I don't care what God has invited me into. I want to be close enough to God to be saved and far enough from God to do whatever I want. That is what Paul is warning against. And he's saying, look, deal with it when it's in your church. And he's saying, look, I don't, it's not my business to deal with people who are outside. People who are lost are lost. Let's bring them in, right? It's God's deal as far as how lost they are, right? On a scale from one to 10. If they're lost, they're lost. Bring them into the church. Let them experience the gospel. But when a person claims Christianity and then refuses 
to walk according to that, you need to be very careful how you interface with that person, how you interact. Paul says don't even eat with such a person. <coughs> so we move on to chapter 6. Paul is going to say, we're going to read the first um, 11 verses. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And do you not know that we shall judge angels? To which everybody in the room said, no, I didn't. Uh, how much more? Things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore... It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So again, Paul is addressing issues in the church. And one of the issues in the Corinthian church is, dude, we went to church and you sat in my chair. I'm going to see you in court on Monday. That's my chair. They're suing each other over stupid things in the church. And Paul says, this is ridiculous, guys. He says, do you, don't you know that we'll judge the world and we'll judge angels? Frankly, apart from Paul telling us this right here, I wouldn't have a clue. But either way, Paul says, look, God's going to give us the ability to judge things. So wouldn't it make sense that you would have the discernment to sort out these problems within, your, uh, within you know, the people of the church? And what he's, what he's not saying here is that there's never an appropriate time for a Christian to use the legal system. It's not. The, the scriptures are very clear. The, the, the government that we, is a gift from God. Ordered government, structured government, uh, you know, organized liberty is a gift from God. And we should appreciate it. We should stand in it. We should stand for it. We should, we should appreciate, we should take advantage of it as needed. But the court system is not a means for us to be vindicated, vindicated against someone who we feel has offended us, okay? And specifically, Paul's addressing the idea here within the church. If you're offended by a fellow Christian, the courts are not really going to be your best bet, right? Deal with it in the context of the church. Talk to a pastor, talk to an elder, try to be reconciled to that person, right? The courts, he says, basically what he's saying is... Um, he says, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Are you, using, are you assuming that worldly qualifications are going to equal biblical wisdom? If you've got a struggle with a fellow believer, the fact that a person might have a legal degree has nothing to do with whether or not they understand what the Scripture says for your situation, right? 
A person's qualifications, the fact that a person can wear a black robe and that you're going to stand up when they enter the room is not going to mean that, hey, this person is, is obviously got more wisdom than I do. No, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. You have the power of God granting you wisdom. So Paul's just making a point here. As a general rule, in particular with other believers, going to court is not really going to be a, a great situation for you. It's going to, he says, it's already an utter failure. By the time you're suing a fellow Christian, even if you win, you're probably going to lose. So there's a time when you've got to cut your losses and say, okay, wait a second. What am I really fighting for here? Am I, and am I fighting for my pride? Am I fighting for my own vindication? Am I fighting to prove that I'm right and that nobody gives that to Nate Murphy and he does not take that laying down? Or am I, you know, is that what you're doing? And if that's the case, don't go to court over that. That's dumb. Now, there's a difference between that and I'm going to court over integrity, over the fact that someone has either said or done something that's dangerous to the people of God. There's, there's a time and a place to take advantage of the court and the legal system, okay? And so this isn't saying that a Christian can never go to court, but he's saying you need to bear in mind why. It's kind of like when the scriptures talk about righteous anger, and we can look at it and say like, well, how does that what is righteous anger? And, you know, I kind of felt like that's what I had. No, it's probably not what you had, right? Righteous anger is anger on behalf of someone else. If you're angry for your own self-justification, it's not righteous. But if you're angry because someone is harming the people of God, because sin is destroying somebody's life, that can be a form of righteous anger. And so the same idea applies. Verse 12, chapter 6, Paul's going to shift gears here. Um, and bear in mind, as you, as you read the scriptures, the, uh, the chapter and verse markers are put in place later to help us find our spot. So I can say verse 6, chapter 12, and you all can hopefully get there pretty quickly. Um, but really, starting in verse 12, he's kind of, this is going to tie in much more with chapter 7. So it's sort of the thought, we're shifting overall thoughts here, okay? So chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul's shifting gears here. And again, He's addressing specific issues that the Corinthian church is facing. And one of the issues is the city of Corinth was famous for sexual promiscuity, okay, uh, on a highly flagrant level. And so you had believers coming to the Lord and saying, okay, here's our cultural context. We're trying to figure out, like, what do we do? And can we still do these things and be Christians? And uh, are there things we should stop doing? Are there things that's totally chill if we keep going, right? And like, are there, you know, are rules really that important? And so that's where Paul's going to start shifting here. And he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And that's sometimes a great way for us to kind of just back up, okay? Sometimes we want to get in this question of, well, can I do this, Right? Can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do this and, and, and still go to heaven? That's not really the right question. The question is, should you do this? Right? Should I do this? Well, that's a different question. Is this going to 
take me to hell? Probably not. Is this going to help me draw closer to Jesus Christ? That's a much, much better question, right? And so if you remember, uh, which you probably don't, but that's okay. When we went through Romans in chapter 6, chapter 6 is all about this idea, Okay, we, we we're given the grace of God. We're standing in the grace of God. Where sin abounds in our life, the grace of God is super abounding. It's just overflowing. It's resonating. It's, there's more of it than you possibly could know what to do with. And so then why not just, can't we just walk in sin if there's that much grace? And Paul says, certainly not. Of course not. What a ridiculous idea. And he says, our old man was crucified that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And he says in chapter 6, verse 16, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. Paul in Romans 6 says, listen, here's the deal. When we're talking about holiness, you're going to present your body to someone or something. You're going to offer yourself up. And you're either going to offer yourself up to sin and the wages of sin is death, or you're going to offer yourself up to Christ and the gift of Christ is eternal life. You're choosing to walk a path in life, and you are presenting your body for either holiness or unrighteousness. And so, what are you doing? So, all things are lawful. Yeah, you can do all kinds of sin and still stand and still receive the grace of God. They're not going to help you at all. In fact, they're going to slow you down, they're going to weigh you down, they're going to trip you up, they're going to cause other people to stumble. So, why bother? Right? Are there things in your life that's like, hey, I can do this? But maybe the better question is, hey, should I do this? Are there areas where we look and say, you know what, God is good, you know, God won't send me to hell for this. That's not the question. Is this going to help me walk closer to Jesus Christ? That's where we're going. So the body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for the Lord. Your body is meant to be, God came to save your body. He saved your soul. But he came, Jesus said, I came to give, have life I came that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Jesus did not just come to save your soul. He came to change your present right now. And so you can, you can try and get away with this whole, well, you know, my soul's saved. I can do what I want with my body. Jesus came to impact your present reality. And so your body is not built for sexual immorality. Your body is built for the Lord. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What are you joining yourself to? What are you bonding yourself to? You can bond yourself to a lot of things and still claim the grace of God. But you can bond yourself to Christ and experience life on a deeper level. So verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought with a price. You know, when Jesus died on the cross after being beaten so badly that he would have died had he not been crucified, after being whipped so badly that he would have bled to death had he not been crucified, when his arms were pulled out such that he basically suffocated to death because his entire body was fixed 
His entire weight was fixed on his ankle bone, and basically he had to push up on that until his body collapsed from suffocation. He didn't do that so that you could then walk in sexual immorality. He did that so that you could have life, so that you could walk in holiness, so that you could experience the gifts that he has for you. Your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. And some people have frankly gotten really weird with that verse and, and taken it too far, but it's a principle. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. He's watching every single thing we do. He's participating in a sense. He's not participating in sin, but, but he's there present with everything we do. So what are you doing with that reality? Do we live with that awareness that the Holy Spirit is there? Does that drive our response to who God is? Does that impact our hearts and our lives? So that's where Paul's going. Um, so yeah, don't ask, you know, when we live this life, there's a temptation to ask what we can get away with. We're much better off asking, what can we do that will draw us closer to Christ? And that's really, you know, if you think about it, that goes back to the earlier part about suing each other, the earlier part about, you know, dealing with sin in the church. What can we do that's going to draw us closer to Christ? Are we walking in fellowship with the Lord? So that's chapter 5 and 6. We now move to chapter 7. Paul says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So chapter 7, Paul's going to address a couple specific questions that the people had sent in, if you will. It's kind of like a Q&A panel, but long distance. Hey, all right. So concerning the things which you wrote to me, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, fun stuff. All right, jump over. So Paul's addressing a specific question right? The people are, we're getting saved. We've been walking in all kinds of sexual immorality. Maybe we should just assume that all forms of sexual expression are bad and just, you know, sort of take on a monastic lifestyle. Let's just like all be monks and nuns. Is that what Paul's asking? And so they're asking Paul, hey, what, what's, what's the appropriate response now? You know, we have these hormones, but we understand that most of what we've done with them for our entire life has been sinful. So is the best response in light of the gospel to just shut it all down? What do we do? And so Paul's going to answer. But jump over before we kind of dive into that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel and sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in 
holiness. So if you're ever wondering, what's the will of God for my life? Here you go. The will of God is your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4. You can know the will of God for your life. Now, I dropped that in right there because we're going to basically spend the rest of chapter 7 unpacking your sanctification. And Paul is going to give it to us in basically two doses, either for married people or for single people. So right now, we're in the married chunk. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Marriage is a coming together of two people to serve the Lord effectively. It's one man and one woman joined together in a covenant union. So it's exclusive. It's supposed to be for life. And it's supposed to be representative of the gospel. The role of a husband in a marriage is supposed to symbolize the role of Jesus Christ towards the church. The love that he has for his wife is supposed to demonstrate the love that Christ has for the church. The wife, in her response to the husband's love, is supposed to be a demonstration of the church's response to the love of Christ. And so Paul's explaining here what is marriage. What marriage, and he kind of starts off by what marriage is not. Marriage is not a way for you to get your needs met. Marriage is not a way for you to say, hey babe, I have physical needs, time to meet them. No, no, marriage is a way for you to serve somebody. It's a way for you to die to yourself, to say, oh, this is not about me getting my needs met. It's about me meeting the needs of someone else. It's about me actually denying myself and saying not what do I want or need, but what do you need? And so walking in that service, being a servant to your spouse. That's the role of a marriage. It, and it's just like, you know, uh, if somebody ever says, hey, you need to respect me right now. Sort of by definition, they're proving that they don't deserve the respect that they're asking for. When somebody says, hey, you need to meet my needs in this relationship, by definition, what you're demonstrating is you're not focused on meeting the needs of the person you're talking to. So a healthy marriage is about service, and there's supposed to be a willingness and an awareness in a healthy marriage to meet the needs of the other person. He says, don't deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. There is a time in marriage to sometimes say, hey, we're going to step back for a little bit. And how long should you do that? Well, how long do you fast routinely? If you're fasting regularly, that's probably a good ballpark, all right? For how long should you deprive your spouse of their needs? How long do you like to be hungry? That's sort of a, a metric, okay? Um, so basically saying, your job is to serve your spouse. And along the way, don't ever weaponize your body as a means of getting what you want. Don't deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Paul says, I say this as a concession not a commandment. I'm not saying, Paul says, that you have to get married. I'm saying, hey, if you're going to get married, here's what you need to keep in mind, okay? But I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, one in another. He says, look, you know, I see some serious perks for being single, but hey, if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. Okay, verse eight, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, 
It is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is another verse that gets taken out of context, which is, babe, we have got to get married because I am burning. And that's really not the appropriate uh, grounds for getting married. He's saying, look, staying single is a good thing. Getting married is also a good thing. If you, if you, if you have basically a need for companionship and relationship, it's okay to get married. It's better to do that than to basically tempt yourself to walk in sin in a long-term uh, sort of unsustainable path if that's where you're on. Okay, but Paul's going to make a point here, and we're going to, we get a little farther in the chapter, we're going to unpack this deeper. But Paul's basically holding up marriage is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. They're both gifts from the Lord. They both have certain challenges. They both have certain opportunities. They both have certain responsibilities. They both have certain blessings. Paul's going to say, hey, I'm writing this as a single guy. So here's sort of what I see. If you're married, it's not a bad thing. Some people can take this and say, okay, basically, here's how it works. Real Christians stay single. Loser Christians get married. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, each has his own gift from God, right? One in this way, one in another. Verse 10. Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. He's saying, basically, understand if you're going into marriage, divorce is not a part of God's original plan, right? Now, the Bible's very clear. The Lord hates divorce. It was not part of the marriage plan. The Bible's also clear that it's a sin-cursed world. And so sometimes... Divorce truly is the lesser of two evils. If there's a situation uh, where there's safety issues or there's adultery issues, the divorce is sometimes truly the only option or the safest option or the best option. That doesn't change the fact that it's still a tragedy, right? God's intent and purpose for marriage is one man and one woman together for life. And when that gets broken... There's still redemption, there's grace, there's all kinds of things, right? And God will still work. Romans 8.28 says God can work all things together for good. But if you're going into marriage, you shouldn't go in with the plan that divorce is your option, yeah. right? It's, it's, no, we're going into a covenant. This is going to be lifelong. We are committed to each other in the Lord. Verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So again, he's addressing specific cultural issues in the church. And in a church like this, a new church plant in a pagan city, you're going to have people who are getting saved whose spouse is not saved. And then the question is, well, what do I do? I'm a Christian, right? I'm supposed to be joined to a fellow Christian, but I'm currently joined to a pagan, so should I divorce them? Should I leave them? And oh, by the way, there's this really hot guy at church. Uh, is this like, you know, the Lord moving and working? And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Let's back this up. If your unmarried spouse is willing to stay in this relationship, 
Stay in the relationship. You're having an opportunity right now to live out the gospel, to demonstrate the love of God for your spouse in a way that, that no other person is probably ever going to have. So if they're willing to stay, stay. Stay faithful to them. If they leave, you're free. If they say, I have had it, it's me or Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ, right? But if they're willing to stay, you have an opportunity to sanctify your household. You have an opportunity to bring the presence of God into that home in a way that no one else is going to be able to. So don't just say, hey, I'm saved, see ya. No, hey, I'm saved, therefore now I want to demonstrate the love of God towards you in this marriage. Verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So he's expounding on this idea. Basically what he's saying is, when you become a Christian, don't obsess over your circumstances. And are they what they need to be? And am I, whole, am I, am I you know, if I got this figured out, and do I need to divorce my husband or stay married or stay single? Or he said, you know what? Obsess over Jesus Christ. When you become married, when you become, sorry, when you get saved, obsess over Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter at that point. Are you circumcised, you're uncircumcised, or a slave, or a free? Hey, if you got an opportunity to become free, go for it. But don't let your circumstance define you once you're a Christian. Let Christ define you once you're a Christian. And now we move on to verse 25. Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction." And all God's people said, we really hope Nate doesn't say anything stupid in the next five minutes. But here's where Paul's at. And this is a, a challenging portion of scripture sometimes because we read it and we think, okay, well, dang. Uh, if you're single, suck it up. It's a long road. Here you go. It's really probably not the best way to interpret this, okay? And here's why. 
Christianity is full of paradoxes. It's full of things that seem contradictory and yet are completely true. For example, is God sovereign? Yes. How sovereign? Pretty darn. Are you responsible for your own actions? Yeah, how responsible? Pretty responsible. Now, at face value, those are contradictions, right? If God is really sovereign, then are you really responsible? It, I mean, like, if he knows everything you're going to do before you do it, before you even think about doing it, then did you actually have the freedom to do it? Think about it. Or on the flip side, if you're totally responsible, if you can, if you can do what you want, if you have the right to choose to disobey God, then does that mean God is really in control? What do we do with that? And we come across these all the time. Christianity is full of them. And here's, and here's, here's the challenge for us, is we have human minds. We like to understand things. Sorry. We like to understand things in sort of a straight-up, rational, ABC format. Okay? So sometimes what we do with a paradox is we move towards the middle, right? Was Jesus fully God or fully man? Well, he was, I mean, you know, you can, it's church, right? So we all know we're supposed to say he was fully God and fully man. But how on earth does that work, right? There's not a person in this room who could explain that to me. It just, it just doesn't work, right? Like, like if you're fully God, I can't conceive being human without associating sinful desires with it. Like, that's just such a part of being human for me, right? So how could you be fully human and not have a sinful desire, right? We're, 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 Christianity is full of these. And what we like to do sometimes, if we're not careful, is we move towards the middle. And we say, well, God is like, he's sovereign within the context of your responsibility. Or you have free choice in the, in the context of God's sovereignty. And we kind of like condense them and push them and try and like rationalize these big truths. Here's sometimes the better approach, and that is to run to the ends on both sides. Is God sovereign? No. He is so sovereign, you can't begin to fathom how in control he is. Colossians says that by him, all things are held together. Every proton and electron and neutron in an atom, every atomic bond is held together by the power of Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing that is happening apart from his will. And are you responsible? You are so responsible for your actions. God has given you the ability and the choice to the point that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, I wanted to take you under my wings, but you wouldn't let me. And that can sometimes leave us uncomfortable to really embrace the fact that the Bible gives us hard truths that we, don't, or that we aren't going to fully grasp. Okay, so sometimes we try and come to the middle, but we don't read the scriptures to make ourselves comfortable. We need to read the scriptures to become like Christ, to be made holy. And so sometimes we come to a paradox and we say, you know what, let's just kind of like squeeze it, right? And really what we should do is say, if the word of God says it's true, it's all the way true, right? And so that's what we need to do. 
with 1 Corinthians 7, okay? The word of God holds up marriage and singleness as a paradox. Marriage is good. And celibacy, singleness, is good. And sometimes we try and kind of push them towards the middle, right? What, what, what's, what are you supposed to say when you're a married Christian? Marriage is good, but it's hard. Yeah, no, it's good, but it's hard. And when, and when you're a single Christian, uh, being single is hard, but it's hard, right? <laughs> and and, and we, can, we, can, we can try and like push these things together. That's not what we're supposed to do. Word of God says in Genesis 2, God invented marriage, right? God took perfection in the Garden of Eden and said, I'm gonna do one last tweak. I'm gonna add one more thing. I'm going to invent marriage. And a man is gonna be joined to his wife and there's gonna be a spiritual, emotional, and physical bond that's gonna happen between them. I'm gonna divide Adam into two beings because I want a picture of relationship on this earth. I'm even gonna reorient everything about his anatomy and her anatomy. This is gonna be an amazing gift for humanity. They're gonna understand relationship. They're gonna understand voluntary love. They're gonna understand how I love them through this bond. Marriage is an awesome thing. But scripture holds up celibacy as an awesome thing. And Paul says, look, here's the deal. It's good for a man to remain as he is. The time is short. He says, I want you to be without care. Celibacy, we can, you know, if you're a single person, quick survey. How many people in the room are not married? Hands up. Put them up. Come on. You're not married. You can put your hand up. Most of this room is not married, right? And if we're not careful sometimes in the church, we can understand that marriage is a good thing. We can understand Genesis 2, Paul's teachings on marriage, Peter's teachings on marriage, things that Jesus said. We can say, wow, this is good. And we can hold up celibacy as some sort of in-between state where you're just unfulfilled. Celibacy is a great thing. It's a gift from God. There are opportunities, there are chances, there are privileges, there are gifts and callings that you can walk in as a single person that once you're married, you can't do. There are things we have the opportunity to do as single people the day you say I do, those things go away, right? There are some things that you will lose when you get married. Now, that doesn't mean that marriage is bad, right? It's a paradox. Marriage is awesome. And celibacy, being a single person, is awesome. Now, the challenge is they're both gifts, right? They're both gifts from the Lord, the challenge is, when you're celibate, you're allowed to desire marriage. Once you're married, you really have no business desiring to be single again. That's just not healthy. Once, but if you're single, and every single one of us is born single, right? So we all have this at some point in time. We're all single. We all have the gift of singleness, at least for a window. Uh, it is okay to desire to cross that divide. But here's some things. It's not okay, and this is, this is the danger for all of us who are single. It's not okay to desire the gift more than the giver, right? Marriage is an incredible gift from God. 
Singleness is an incredible gift from God. It is okay to desire a gift from God. We'll get into a couple weeks the spiritual gifts. And Paul says, I desire the gifts. I desire you guys to have the gifts. I want you to have the gifts. It's okay to want the gifts of God. It is not okay to want them more than you want Christ. And so that's where we're at. That's in, in 1 Corinthians 7. And we just got to park because, frankly, this, uh, it's just an easy part to kind of gloss over and say that's a weird portion. And I really uh, I think we need to stop and, and appreciate, as a church, this is a role that God has allowed in the church for a reason. And this is, radic- this is a radical shift from Judaism. This is a kind of a thing we need to understand. In the Old Testament, you were either married or not yet married, right? You were either like, you joined the club or you better be trying to join the club. And Scripture, and Paul's addressing this to a culture that's saying, hey, we just came out of all kinds of sexual immorality. What do we do? Paul says, you desire Christ. That's what you do. And if you're single, desire Christ. If you're married, desire Christ. If you're single and you want to be married, that's a fine desire. Desire Christ more. And so that's where he says, he says, so bear in mind, you're going to have struggles if you, if you get married. There's going to be some challenges. And those of us who are single in the room say, yeah, bring it on. We'll, still, we'll take our chances. Um, but it's a gift. Being single is a gift from the Lord. And Paul's just saying, don't miss the gift that you have in desiring the gift that you want, right? So, and he goes on in this kind of weird last few verses. He says, but if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she's past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He doesn't sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart having no necessity but has power over his own will and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well. He who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. It's a weird passage, but basically he's answering a cultural question, which is, and bear us in mind, the way a woman got married in the ancient world was her father picked out her husband. And so there's this question rising up in the church, hey, should we let our daughters get married? And basically Paul's answering that. He's saying, if your daughter wants to get married, let her get married. If she doesn't, you don't need to force her to get married. So he's leaving, he's honestly leaving a lot of freedom and anybody who says that, like, scriptures are all, you know, the word of God tramples on women, Paul's basically saying, look, if your daughter doesn't want to get married, that's okay. In a world where that was not okay, right? So Paul's giving a lot of freedom here. He's saying, but, you know, actually, I think if she wants to stay single, she'll be able to serve the Lord in certain ways that she won't be once she gets married. So if she wants to stay single, God bless her. And so we're wrapping up basically this idea, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you know, Paul says all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. And the question is not what condition and state are you in in life. The question is, are you desiring Jesus Christ? And so just, we find ourselves, we got to kind of just pause and say, is that what we're desiring? And if you are married, desire Christ more than your spouse. If you're single, desire Christ more than you either desire to be single or than you desire to be married. If you desire to be married, a couple things. Okay, that are sometimes just helpful to remember. 
it's a good desire. Okay, sometimes, you know, again, embrace the paradox. Sometimes if you're single, there can be this temptation to say, okay, gosh dang it, if I'm really holy, if I really love the Lord, I'll just like lose this desire to be married. And if I have this desire to be married, it just means I'm not serious enough about the Lord. Well, no, not necessarily. Marriage is a great gift. It's a, it's a good desire to want to be married. Proverbs says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But desire Christ more. Don't ever think that marriage will make you complete because it won't. If you are incomplete in your relationship with Christ, marriage will just make you miserable and incomplete. If you are complete in your relationship with Christ where you can say, if I have Christ and nothing else, I have everything. And if I have everything else and I lack Christ, I have nothing. The marriage can be an awesome thing. But marriage in and of itself will not complete you. Marriage is not a substitute for a relationship with the Lord, right? Don't demand marriage above the other gifts that the Lord gives you. You know, the, the danger is if you insist, if you make your service to God conditional, he will often meet the condition, but you will lose something along the way. Rachel told Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And you know what happened? She got children and she died. If you say, God, I need a wife more than I need anything else, you know what you'll probably get? A wife. And you know what you'll probably lose? Everything else. So desire it. Ask the Lord for it. Pray for her. Pray for him if you're a girl, right? It's a good desire. It's not a substitute for Christ. Don't, uh, don't miss the opportunities you have right now. Married people, and I say this in love, Married people like to say, you know, there are lessons you'll learn as a married person that you just can't learn any other way. Whatever. Uh, it's true, I'm sure. I'm sure it's true. But here's the thing. There are lessons you can learn as a single person that you're not going to learn any other way. Right? There are lessons you learn when you're walking through loneliness, when you are, when it is just you and the Lord, right? When you're getting in bed by yourself and it's been a long day, it's you and the Lord. And so there are lessons you can learn that the Lord wants to teach you. Don't waste them, right? Don't waste the opportunity and don't, and, and don't, don't shun marriage in the same way, right? It's a paradox and it's okay to grasp that it's a paradox. It's a good thing. Both are gifts from God. And so what do we desire? Jesus Christ. That is the gift. We desire the giver of the gift more than the gift itself, right? We were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. In whatever state you're in, that's the call. So Lord, we thank you for your word, the privilege of opening it up and seeing how it applies to us. We pray that we would receive the truths that are in it. We pray that it would impact our lives with power, that we would walk in holiness, that we would stand in grace. God, we want to just absorb more of who you are, to be more like you. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. God, go before us, prepare the way. We pray that you would give us opportunities to invite those who are outside your kingdom into your kingdom, that we would uh, get a chance to interact 
with the sexually immoral and the revilers and the, the covetous and the drunkards, that we would get to welcome them into the kingdom of God. And we just ask all these things in your name. Amen.